Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into another wonderful edition of the Snap Hook Podcast. I, as always, am Tim Costello and he most days of the week is Scott Barzilla. Yeah, just occasionally. Um, maybe on just Wednesdays and Thursdays here for us. Hey, you know, it's uh, it's a part-time gig, but it's uh, it's not an easy one, as they say, being Scott. No, and, and, and the pay is, you know, pro- we, we probably could, you know, do a little better in that category, but hopefully we'll get there someday. Yeah, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to get with the bosses and see if maybe they can uh, add a little bit more into the, into the, Salary requirements for for Scott Barzilla. I don't know what the job requirements are for for being Scott. We'll have to maybe look at and see if maybe you're not getting the right kind of certifications or what it is that they get you into that upper echelon. Well, and, and you know, we just filled out the tax return, so that that'll be a, another uh, an issue for another Wednesday. Mm, mm, I have to do that tonight as well. Speaking of of, of tax returns, Scott, I mean. How's the uh, how's the week been other than than painstaking for for doing your taxes? Well, you know, it's actually uh, you know, my daughter's really excited. She's going to we're going to Disney World uh, for a choir trip. And so I get to chaperone that. Uh, my principal is nice enough to give me a few days off. So, you know, as of you know, Thursday morning, we 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 hours in the morning at 3 a.m. We will be off to Disney World. The happiest place on earth. That's right. And, you know, one of the things I found out, did you know that you are not allowed to die in Disney World? I did not know that. So, you know, let's say, you know, I'm walking through, you know, we'll be at Epcot. Let's say I have a massive coronary. Mm -hmm. They will actually move my body outside the park, drop me, and then declare me dead. Bold. Yes. Bold move by Walt. Well, you know, it's the mouse. Uh, the mouse always, you know, as we've seen in the last few weeks, the mouse always winds up on top. There's some fantastic South Park episodes that that has like Mickey Mouse as like this like fashy leader, and it's just oh, absolutely yeah. mm-hmm. 
it is wonderful watching like this reputation of like a real life Mickey Mouse like be the the cause of many many issues. Well, and, and kicking the, the uh, Jonas Brothers asses, you know, uh, repeatedly. Yeah, I, I remember that episode. My daughter actually has a, a, a Mickey Mouse T-shirt where he looks mean. You know, he looks like he's in a bad mood, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I didn't show her that episode yet. I don't know where she's getting this from. It it's uh, it'd be fun to have a to have a, a real life representation of Mickey instead of uh, the cartoon version. But alas, we uh, we have the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse instead, Scott, and it's. Yes, fun, we do. fun club to be a member of. So, you know, this week, and actually, you know, I, I, I'm going to say, unluckily, um, this issue kind of drops into our lap where we wanted to tackle for these next couple of weeks. And, and we are looking at the whole issue of guns. And obviously, with the school shooting in Tennessee, uh, the political fallout there, which, you know, I don't know if we'll get much to, into tonight uh, or next week, but, you know, we... we we recognize it; it's definitely there. And then, of course, the uh, the mass shooting that just occurred in Kentucky uh, this week, a couple of days ago. If you're listening to this on a Wednesday morning, um, you know it, it kind of this this issue just you know, happened to fit you know perfectly. And uh, and I you know kind of have a little preamble, of, so to speak, as a teacher. I just want to point out the United States is a liberal democracy. And when I say a liberal democracy, I don't mean liberal conservative. I don't mean that. Uh, what I mean, basically, is that liberal democracy means that the default setting is freedom. And so, you know, we want, uh, we want to give people absolute freedom unless there is a compelling reason for regulation. And so, you know, we've kind of seen, you know, definitely this year, but in all years, there, there are, you know... Gun total deaths, usually we're, we're going north of 30,000 a year, which, you know, we, we mentioned in a previous episode, Lauren Bobert mentioned 15,000, and that's only gun-related murders. If you add in the suicides, we're going north of 30,000. And so if you're north of 30,000, I would think most people would agree that there is a compelling argument that the government should regulate it. But before we get to those regulations tonight, what we're looking at is a history of gun technology and a kind of a history behind uh, how those arguments are framed. You know, we're going deep in the past and, and how that kind of pushes us into the modern age. And then, you know, hopefully next week we can get to some concrete suggestions of what could be done now. But, you know, if, if you're tuning into that this week, you know, I, I don't want to disappoint you in, in the line uh, in just right off the bat, but I think you'll find the, uh, the historical context behind this issue is going to be very interesting. Absolutely. And, and we are going to get into some of the history of weapons control and, and how they've been controlled specifically in America. And that's going to be more part two, but before you can really understand the way that we control weapons and guns, I, I think you have to understand the technologies that existed and then who was buying them, right? Because there was a, a period of time where, um, you know, guns were tools. They weren't, you know, the, the fashion accessory that they are now. And so there was definitely a change, uh, especially in America specifically on, on how guns were marketed and who was buying guns. 
And really, there are about two or three different key inflection points in the United States history um, when you look at either gun control laws or weapons bans or even, you know, the purpose of the NRA. You know, it's, it's really, really important to take a look back at the history of, of what guns people were owning, what guns were available, and who was using those guns throughout the history of their invention. Because, you know, at the end of the day, guns for certain people are useful tools. You know, if you were a, um, you know, a settler in the 1800s, you know, making your way through California, having a gun probably wasn't the worst thing in the world as you might come across a bear or two, or you might need to shoot some food to be able to survive. So there was a time in this country where the gun was a tool. Uh, and then, you know, as our our history changes and, and certain people uh, that were enslaved were no longer enslaved, the way guns were marketed completely changed. And it'll be really interesting as we as we take a look at the history of of these you know tools or these weapons uh, to see how they change over time. And one of the things I think uh, Tim and I kind of shoot um, just to give you all a little you know peel back behind the curtain here. We shoot you know websites and, and different things back and forth over the course of the week, just to kind of you know um, I call it a research dump. Um, but, you know, I stumbled onto a PBS uh, website that had kind of a, a brief history in guns. And really, if you're looking at it, you're looking at a European history on guns because, you know, the, on the website itself, it doesn't really have anything prior to Europe. What we do know is that the Chinese are really the first you know, civilization to uh, really delve into gunpowder. Uh, which they will use extensively like they had fireworks, um, you know, just going back, you know millennia you know not not just centuries um but one of the things i noticed when i looked at this list and i'm sure tim noticed this too is that when you look at each step and i'm kind of nutshelling here before we get into like the bare bones of it but when you look at every time there is a technological advancement in firearms it seems like there's always a significant war right there you know in the same time period uh, and so, you know, really there's, there's one of two ways that, you know, this kind of comes about. It, it can't be a coincidence. And so either A, we're getting into a war and, oh, crap, we need better technology. We better, you know, develop some real quick. Or, oh, we have this new technology. I bet this other country doesn't have it. Let's see if we can use it, you know, to our advantage and maybe, you know, take some territory or something along those lines. And I'm sure you noticed that when you were looking through the timeline. And so, which kind of gets back to, you know, the original purpose of the firearm. Uh, yeah, we use it for hunting, sure. Uh, yeah, we use it for, you know, maybe some self-protection. But really, it's a weapon of war, first and foremost, and, and even to this day. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And even if you look at the history of American gun manufacturers, they made fortunes on on imperialism as uh, many European nations went to Africa and went to uh, South America and other countries. They used American guns to um, expand their, their control rapidly over natives in mostly in Africa as they exploited those lands. So you're absolutely right, Scott. And I mean, you can even look at, at, at Germany um, where, 
you know, they went to war just because they knew they had the technology to do so and they had better munitions than everybody else. And so uh, you're absolutely right that a lot of times, you know, at least up until World War II, I think is when you would really see the technology of weapons driven by the needs of the soldier. Uh, I, I think, and really it's not even World War II, it's, I think we'll start to see it when we talk a little bit more about Harlan Carter and his his takeover of the NRA in 1977, then you kind of start to see gun technology change a little bit more and you start to see, you know, more customizable weapons for the own, like the, the regular guy owner, you know, the, the scopes, the, the barrels, the bump stocks, the extended magazines, things like that were, you know, those are all formerly military grade upgrades right and then we've seen that technology change to where anybody who really knows anything about guns could could build an ar-15 by themselves and make it completely custom and that's just where the technology is at nowadays so to to uh fulfill our promise here uh beginning of you know this website where this is what pbs has for us and so, again, I, I'm giving you all a European history of guns because, like I said, Asia and China, they developed this technology, you know, well before this. But And, and Japan, too, Scott, actually, you know, during the, some of the wars for control of Japan, they used what was called the Arquebus um, very, very effectively, really starting around 1543, too. So you're right that guns expanded everywhere, but, but what we're looking at today kind of is um, the ca- Caucasian history of guns because it's going to lead us more to where we're at with the issues we're having in America today. Uh, you are correct there. Um, and in looking at the European history of guns, the first recorded use of a firearm is in 1364. So, I mean, we are talking less than 800 years if we're looking at a Eurocentric model here. Um, they, you know, they start to have handguns. Uh, we have the matchlock gun appears in the, in the uh, 15th century, the 1400s. And of course, in the 1400s, the latter part of the 1400s is when we start to have exploration. So uh, I am sure, you know, part of that was, you know, used as, you know, methods, particularly when we get into the 1500s. And we, we have the Spaniards coming over and later, you know, those other countries in Europe uh, that they are utilizing the firearm. We know for a fact that, for, for instance, when uh, Hernando Cortez uh, goes to the Aztecs that they think he's a God, not only because he's white, but because he has this, you know, firearm technology, which they had never seen before. And so that, you know, gives him an end there. Absolutely. And as we mentioned before, as imperialism begins to spread, the technology gets better, right? Because rifling technology comes into play in, in 1498 and what that means for those of you who, who don't know much about it there's lines on the inside of a barrel that score the barrel and get the get the bullet spinning in a certain direction and you know as it spins that's what keeps it on target right when you used to just put uh, you know a ball in there gunpowder and have it shoot out people were carrying mini cannons around at that point right before they even had the flintlock they would have to light it on fire essentially like you would a cannon so these these early guns we're talking about in the 1300s and 1400s, they weren't effective. They were, you know, you, you could be just as effective with a well-trained bow and arrow, a well-trained longbow regiment could do just as much damage because of how inaccurate these firearms were. 
and how slowly they load it. So as they begin to, uh, you know, explore, as some would say, or exploit, as others would say, and they go to other lands, firearm technology has to get better in order to do that exploitation, in order to take charge of these uh, natives of the, the areas that they're going to. You're absolutely right, Scott. And if you've seen the movie, The Patriot, I mean, you kind of see the technology at work, you know, that, that they're using. And so basically, if you watch the movie, The Patriot, um, that they, they have uh, the muskets, you know, this is, you know, during the revolution. So what they're doing is they're, they're, they're taking metal, they're melting it down, and they're forming balls. You know, they're basically, the, bull, the bullets are balls. Now, immediately, you know what's going, you know what's wrong here. Uh, because, you know, these balls cannot be perfectly shaved. And if they're not perfectly shaved, they're not, you know, they're not aerodynamic. They're not accurate. You know, I could sit there, I could aim it at Tim, and I would might hit something three feet to his left or to his right. And this is why our militaries at this point are marching in formation. And I, I think this is so very important because, you know, you look at the marching in formation today, you're thinking, oh, God, they're idiots. You know, you could just take a machine gun. Da, 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 da. Obviously, we're not there yet. We don't have the machine gun technology. We don't even have manufactured bullets at that point because, you know, if we fast forward, we fast forward and really the first manufactured bullets come well into the 1800s, which kind of, you know, this is after the Second Amendment's passed. This is, you know, after the Bill of Rights, this is after the American Revolution, this is after the War of 1812, after all of these events. Um, and so one of the things that you know, we're obviously going to get into in addition to the technology is the evolution of the arguments. And, and one of the things we've, we've started teaching in English, and I'm surprised they still let us do this, but we're, we teach the power of persuasion. And so if you got this lesson in school, you got this lesson that there is ethos, pathos, and logos. Let's see, I'm going to see if the quiz Tim here. Do you know what those three are? Uh, ethos is, um, you know, your ability to think with emotion, if I remember correctly, or is that uh, past? That's the other one. Logos is logic, obviously. And then ethos, I guess, uh, I can't remember that one. Okay, so the, the best way to think of those is to think of the words that they're similar to. And so um, I think of it as ethics. Okay. Yeah. Ethical argument. But what, so what that, what ethos is, is a natural authority that you have. So like when we were talking with uh, uh, what some people have to call her, Dr. Barzilla, in last week's episode, uh, I don't have to call her that, but uh, she has a list people that have to call her doctor and she has a natural ethos surround around certain issues because she she has you know the training and so what conservatives and i'm not going to go you know we can talk left and right we can do all those things but the conservative appeal throughout time is always pathos always pathos and that is the emotional appeal is the most powerful of all the appeals and if you look at you know what do we want you to feel the most? And that is fear. Because if you're afraid, we can get you to do what you want. And, and to see this evolve over time, there's always a bogeyman. Uh, some people call me the bogeyman, but that's on the golf course, you know, because I make a lot of bogeys. But um, 
but if you're looking at the boogeyman, the bogeyman, whatever you want to call it, that changes through time, depending on, you know, what people would naturally be afraid of. And so, like, if you're looking at Revolutionary War time, you know, post, you know, when we've won the revolution, Native Americans, that's our boogeyman. You know, we need to be afraid the Indians going to attack us. Okay, that's going to change. Uh, we're going to change uh, when we get past the Civil War. That's going to become, you know, the people who used to be our slaves. Uh, those are, you know, African-Americans today. Uh, one of my colleagues today actually said a kid used the term colored in school this week to talk about African-Americans. And he even cringed because yeah, I think he knew it was wrong, but it's like, if you know it's wrong, then what, what are we doing here? But that's going to shift in the uh, 1900, early 1900s. It's going to shift to immigrants because, you know, we're, we're really worried about them, whether they're coming from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, uh, Asia, uh, if we're coming from China, Japan. Uh, I mean, they and we're passing laws, you know, around uh, these immigration models and how immigrants are viewed differs greatly depending on where they're from. Uh, people that came from where my ancestors came from, we weren't looked at on too fondly, you know, for people coming from Italy. It's it's really um, funny what when you look at now people who are considered quote unquote white, right? Um, at some point in America, all those Eastern European races that we now consider white we're not considered white people at many points in America. We're not having the same privileges the white people were in America. So you mentioned the Italians, uh, the Irish as well. Like these were all populations that were very much villainized in, in American culture. Um, but you, you did skip over one thing I wanted to jump back to real quick, Scott, because um, one of the things that, that is so interesting about guns today is a lot of people – you view them as a fashion statement, right? Like you go out to, to Panda Express and you see the, the dumbass rocking the, the double holster with guns and a double one, you know, rocking six guns because that's their look. Well, starting in, um, it was the 1600s. You, I'm sorry, in the 1750s, you had the first true fashion statements for guns and that was dueling pistols. And it's it's interesting that those were a way that people expressed themselves. People carried around fancy dueling pistols. They may not have always had them with them, but they had very expensive custom guns used only for the purpose of potentially murdering another human being in an argument. And then that gun would go back away till the next time they had an argument where they needed to potentially murder another human being. But it was in 1750 for the first time we really had guns making their way in as a fashion statement. Yeah, I, uh, I, it probably sounds like I'm jumping around, but these things are happening, you know, like kind of in a parallel universe. You know, uh, so we have the technology as the technology develops, which we'll keep walking down that timeline. I'm, I'm not going to skip that timeline, but we also have the rhetoric surrounding it. And, and so whenever you're looking at uh, the rhetoric of today, which the rhetoric of today, let's think about this. The right loves to talk about how basically our cities, and particularly the blue-run cities, are a dystopian nightmare. Uh, Chicago, now Portland. We're, you know, we're, we're in New York, even as you're hearing it now. 
the, and so the, the thing is, you know, I want people to understand this is not a new thing. This is a thing that that's, uh, we're tracing this timeline back at the same time that we're looking at the timelines surrounding uh, you know, surrounding the technology. Uh, this is where we're talking about the uh, the the wave coming in, you know, this that we're invading from the south. People coming invading us from Mexico and how dangerous these people are. Uh, we're and so if you trace this back, you keep going back, you'll see this. We we have made immigrants the boogeyman before. Um, what's so funny? I was going to tell you this story my, my, when my wife was at Rice. Uh, she had a, uh, somebody else that was in her lab that was doing her lab experiment on heart research and actually made the Italians were their own race. So you had African-Americans, you had white, you had Hispanic, you had Asian, and then Italian. We were our own race. And, and the reason for that was is because the, uh, the Mediterranean diet was different. And so they wanted to, you know, to look at that, but you were mentioning how, you know, the people from Eastern Europe and, and, and certainly the Irish, you know, are example of this. And this is, goes back to the beginning of the 20th century when we are demonizing um, all these people coming in, they're immigrants. What's the purpose of this? Now, are there facts surrounding this? Are the Irish just, you know, notoriously dangerous and, and violent people or Italians? notoriously dangerous and violent people are the people south of the border. You know, are they just, just these criminals? No, but it, it is, it is a pathos argument. It is an emotional appeal that if we can make you afraid of these people, then we can get you to do what we want you to do. That might mean voting against your interest, you know, certainly economically and, 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 uh, and in these days, you know, just period. But it's also, Hey, you know, could we get you to buy a gun? And so, you know, we'll look at, obviously, uh, you mentioned the key figure with the NRA. Uh, we'll get to him soon enough. But, you know, basically the masters went from, and, and just, and this has happened in my lifetime because I was born before 1977. The, the difference, you know, the masters, the NRA used to be for the rank and file gun owner. They don't represent the rank and file gun owner. They reckon, represent the manufacturers. How do we represent the manufacturers? We get you scared, so you buy a gun. And, and this goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, and it goes back further than that, which is what you know where these parallel lines are being drawn. It goes back to when slavery ends, you know, post Civil War. It goes back to oh, you know, uh, it goes actually... back to uh, the Native Americans back way before then. That we're going to make you afraid of those people. I mean, yes and no. If you actually, I mean, we'll get into the NRA a little bit down the line, but I mean, the NRA was a sporting society. The NRA was started by two Civil uh, Civil War Union generals who noticed at the beginning of the war, there's a big disadvantage when it came to the men that were drafted in the North versus the men that were drafted in the South, because the men in the North had little to no experience using guns because they lived in cities versus the men in the South had, had grown up shooting and were much better shots. So they started the NRA to be a uh, a way to get guns in the hands of kids for target shooting, for sports shooting, and for hunting. Uh, and then it also became a way to unload army surplus guns at a discounted rate. So like the M1 Garand, after it was out of fashion, was sold heavily through NRA memberships. And, it, and the NRA didn't even have a lobbying arm uh, until Harlan Carter created one in, in, in the 60s um, after leaving 
the border control. But again, we'll get into that. But, you know, the NRA is really only recently the problem. It's the, it's the manufacturers itself. But but the, the boogeyman aspect, that really wasn't the case in, until after, after the Civil War. You know, up until that point, they didn't. They didn't market guns to people in America that way. It just really wasn't done. And then after the Civil War, it was, okay, now you have all these freed slaves. You need to be able to protect your family. And it, the protect your family really, really came in in the 1900s, um, especially on a marketing side of things because of the lost dollars to imperialism kind of slowed down. Uh, you know, American gun manufacturers made so much money off imperial, you know, colonial imperialism, that they didn't have to try and sell their guns very much in the United States as far as marketing efforts go. But also, marketing efforts weren't the levels that they were, so we don't have the same evidence that we do for something that happened in 1900. But we do know when you look at the percentage of gun ownership, you know, and people who said why they own guns, uh, you know, all the way up until like the 1990s, most people who said they own guns owed them for hunting and sports shooting. It wasn't until the nineties that it became, you know, protection or, or self-defense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I didn't mean to, um, to imply that it was the NRA doing this back then because the NRA is obviously a newer organization, but you know, there was some marketing. Now, if you look at, so, and this is um, dogs having some problems here, folks. Sorry about that. Um, so if we look at the second amendment, and I mean, and I have, you know, have this memorized because you know, it's part of what we do. A well-regulated militia being necessary to, for the defense of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. As an English teacher, we're looking at, uh, that is what we call a complex sentence. And the complex sentence is that we have an independent clause and we have a dependent clause. So... The right to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. That is an independent clause. It's a, it's, it can stand on its own as a sentence. The other part, a well-regulated militia being necessary for defense of a free state, that is a dependent clause, not necessary for the sentence. So when our, you know, it just as looking at it from an English teacher's perspective, uh, when you're inserting that into a sentence, that's not necessary. It's not something you need to complete the sentence. So basically what you're doing is, is that you're providing context for your independent clause. So for instance, I could sit there and say, being really, really hungry, I chose to go to McDonald's. Now, I chose to go to McDonald's as my independent clause. I could just say that. I chose to go to McDonald's. Perfectly good sentence. But if I sit there and say, being really, really hungry, that would be like why I chose to go to McDonald's. So in the same way, if I'm saying... The right to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. But then inserting the a well-regulated militia being necessary to defend a free state, that's giving context around why we're allowing people to have firearms. And so to, for people to understand, I know Tim knows this very well, but for people to understand, the, the, uh, our forefathers, their number one fear, their number one fear was a large standing army. Because we have to remember that, you know, up until they, you know, threw the British out of the country, the British was were forcing them to house soldiers in their homes, you know, as kind of as a way, you know, to, to lower costs, but also as a kind of a, you know, not so subtle, we're watching you kind of deal. 
And so that's why the Third Amendment is there, because when people look at the Third Amendment, it's like, you know, don't need to quarter troops. Like, what, what, what are you talking about? We don't but back then, that was a thing. And also, and so, too, Scott, our, our founding fathers were giant Roman history nerds. They loved them some Roman history. And there are countless, countless um, times where a Roman general would get the army, take control of the, you know, and seize control of the country. And that was a big fear, there's a big fear of theirs as well, too. They knew that if there was a standing army at all times, their fear was that a general could say, you guys follow me, we're taking over the country. Uh, and that's why, you know, in America, it is against the law to use the United States military for political purposes on its own land. You cannot do that. It is against the law. And that is why you'll, again, we'll get into down the line, some of the changes that are made to our police department because our military can't do those things. Well, and, and really, if you look at American history, we didn't have standing armies until after World War II. I mean, one of the big things about World War II is that we had to mobilize quickly. Uh, I mean, we did have, you know, we had a Navy, obviously, that the Japanese tried to take out of Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. But, you know, part of the, you know, the the problem was is that we had to mobilize and mobilize very quickly because, you know, you're spot on right on the money about, you know, the Roman history. But also just if we watch just the last 80 or so years, if you have a large standing army, you're going to want to use it. And, you know, the United States has have been in more armed conflicts since World War II than probably, See, you know, the whole know, period, though. the whole period... Before then, if you combine all the, you know, all the wars, you know, since the beginning of the Revolutionary War, we've been in more conflicts since See, I then. I don't know if that's necessarily true as far as if you're counting armed conflicts, right? Because you've got War of 1812, you've got the Spanish-American War, you've got um, what we did with Native Americans. I mean, that's that's definitely an armed conflict that we went into. Um, you've got plenty of stuff in the Philippines that we screwed around and messed, messed around there. Um, then you've got, I feel like I'm missing a big one here. I don't know. I feel like there's like five or six. So civil war. Okay. And then yeah. your two world wars. Okay. So seven. seven. Yeah. Okay. Korea. Okay. Vietnam. Okay. Both Iraq wars. Okay. Afghanistan. And then you have, uh, we, I think we sent in troops because uh, he had a, uh, uh, God, the, the, the Black Horse. No, not Black Horse. Uh, so you, you had uh, with the you know, Somalia and the, not the, uh, where we were taking on different, you know, we, do, we did send troops to Bosnia during the 90s. Uh, we also had Canada. South America. Yeah, South America, Canada. So, you know, now were they the same on the scale? I feel like I just, I just feel like we're always been a trigger itchy, trigger happy country. Because even in before the standing military, you had the people who wanted to go and filibuster, right? Where they thought they could go and, and take over areas in the name of the United States and then claim that land for the U.S. and be the governor of that land. So it's like, no, those weren't technically armed conflicts, but a group of Americans did go down and attack other countries and attempt to steal that land. And so it's just, I feel our our culture is one that we're looking for a fight. Whether we have a standing military or whether it's Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, I, you know, someone's 
itching for a fight and they're trying to start something. I feel like in our history, we just like to, we like to start stuff. We really do. I, yeah, I, Bob, what I'm saying is that that's ratcheted up and you cannot deny because, you know, we're talking about like 80 years of history versus 45, 150 or so. Yeah. 150 or so. And so you're talking about the same amount and, and, what, but one of the things, but so remember, the forefathers did not want a large standing army. Now, if you include technology, I mean, we're not talking about manpower, but if you include the technology, we have the largest standing army in the history of the planet. So that done horse and left the barn. But, you know, our people that, you know, that want us to stay true to the Constitution are ignoring or choosing to ignore one major thing which the forefathers were concerned about. Now, if you and, and what they'll do is that, uh, we'll cherry pick. We'll go in and we'll get some individual framers of the Constitution and we'll get some quotes where we want the individual to have firearms. But if you're talking about a militia, the, the ways the militia used to work is it worked in a similar way as to what the, uh, the army does now. A soldier, even... If you are stationed on an American base, uh, your gun is not in your barracks. Your gun is stored somewhere else. You have to have special dispensation to to have a gun on an American base. Now, if we're talking about if we're in a war zone, sure, that sucker's sleeping right next to you because you might need it in the you know in the next few minutes, but. If you're like if you're training at a Fort Bragg or a, you know somewhere else, you're not your gun's not in your barracks. They're keeping that sucker, and this is the military. And you're going to go in and you're going to check it out each day, you know, if in case you need it. So the whole idea behind the the, the militia was that you know, and then the secondary idea in addition to the large, large standing armies, let's say you know you're in South Carolina. And, oh, gosh, the Native Americans are attacking. Well, I can't wait for a national army to march down from Philadelphia. I can't do that. So, you know, we have to be able to defend ourselves at a local level. But yet we don't want a permanent army. We want to be able to mobilize quickly. We want to be able to, you know, mobilize intelligently. But not, you know, to have each state have like a hundred or two hundred thousand people in an army that are just sitting around. Because, you know, we saw what happened in France too in, in the eighteenth century, that, you know, when the Sun King wanted his million man army, well, a million man army has to be paid. They have to be fed. They have to be outfit. That costs a ton of money. Which we now know today if you look at our military budget. Because our military budget, folks, we're coming close to a trillion dollars a year. That we're spending on national defense. I mean, we're over $800 billion. We're not fighting any wars at the moment, but we're raising the military budget every year because it costs money to do these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's kind of get back on topic, though, as we were kind of got away from some of the technology there. Um, You know, one of the big jumps was was the... um, the Colt revolver, Scott, as, as we kind of look past the American revolution, past the Flintlock and we look at the Colt revolver. Cause that's really the first true, you know, semi-automatic wheel gun. And when people think about 
America and the Wild West, the Colt Revolver is, is, is the one that comes to mind for them. And I think that's when you kind of start to see a little bit of a shift, again, away from some of the utility of owning a gun for the tool of it. And that, and here's where we start coming into that personal protection, where you you can shoot multiple shots quickly. You can carry it on your hip and get it out of your holster quickly. Um it was both for the good guys and for the bad guys, right? Whether we're, whether you were the sheriff or whether you were the bank robber or a train robber, um, the Colt was successful. And that's where you start to see the marketing campaigns change that you talked about earlier. That's where you start to see, this is where the technology is starting to line up with some of the marketing where they've now got this gun. It's coming out in um, 1835 which at that point, the, the boogeyman, as you mentioned, is the Native Americans. And a lot of the people carrying the cult are the ones on the Western frontier as Manifest Destiny pushes pushes westward towards the Pacific Ocean. Well, when you're getting attacked by Native Americans because you're in their territory, you need to shoot. You need to shoot fast. That was the thought process. That's why that gun's out there. And it was the frontiersman Wild West cowboy gun. And that's how it was marketed. This is where I think we, we want to fast forward here to uh, people of our parents' generation. Because you think about, you know, what were they watching on television? They were watching Westerns. And we want to look at, you know, how were the Western, you know, how was society depicted? I mean, if we're watching Gunsmoke, I mean, Matt Dillon is like shooting a guy an episode. I mean, he, he's, you know, he's having to pull, he's having to draw, and he's, you know, he's probably killing at least one suspect an episode. I mean, could you imagine? even in modern policing is how bad it is. If you had a guy that was shooting, like killing a suspect, one suspect, even a week, I mean, internal affairs would be like, um, uh, uh, <laughs> but it, what's funny is, is that, you know, everybody has seen some version of tombstone. I mean, tombstone was the famous shootout at the okay corral. Do you know what that the gun battle was about? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was over gun control because they refused to check their guns when they got to town. How many people do you think know that? Not many. I I think I recommended an episode of Behind the Bastards to you that, that cited that edit, so I'm not sure if that's why it's on the top of your head. But if you're a Robert Evans fan, you know it. If not, you probably think that, uh, you know, well, I was, did was messing with uh, Val Kilmer and they needed a talking to. That that episode, you know, that episode you mentioned was, you know, forefront in my mind. But that's something that I that I happened to know before, you know, that episode. And that's something that I think when people are watching the Western, uh, whatever Western you're watching, whether it's Clint Eastwood or whatever, you're just thinking like, you know, well, the wild, you know, well, guns. Every you had a good guy with a gun, a bad guy with a gun. It's like, well, that's not really how the West operated. And so we get this mythos. Of how things are going, you mentioned the cult. You mentioned, you know, eighteen thirty-five, and and obviously, you know, and and, and I love etymology, uh, the the source of words. So, do you know where the word sheriff comes from? It it, it goes from sheriff, sheriff, uh, yeah, sheriff, which is you know, if you look back to like you know, Lord of the Rings, a shire is like the local town or township. And then the Shireve was the, the person in charge of collecting taxes and, and doing that stuff in that in that area. 
So, I mean, you're thinking of like watching, like I, I say Gunsmoke because that's what my in love I'd love to watch, right? I mean, you have Marshall Dillon, Matt Dillon is like, he has a deputy of sorts. I mean, the guy limps for crying out loud. Uh, I think he had Burt Reynolds for a while, but he, he's like the lawman in town. He's a marshal, U.S. marshal. And in that universe, I could see, you know, the idea that, hey, man, I live on the outskirts of town. Obviously, the automobile is not going to be invented for another, say, 100 years. You know, how long is it going to take this Shire Reeve or this sheriff to get out to me? You know, do I, do I want to wait, you know, three or four hours for him to get all the way out here? Or, you know, do I want to protect myself? And so that, you know, that argument makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, I don't know how many times Native Americans are actually attacking. You know, that's probably, we're blowing that out of proportion like we blow everything else. But that's something very real and tangible. The idea that, you know, we're not responding in minutes. We're not responding in hours. And, you know, if I'm just sitting there in my, with my family inside the house, sitting there looking at my pocket watch, and they're like, hey, it's been two hours. How much longer? Matt Dillon should be getting here any minute. Come on. I understand, you know, the desire to have, your own firearm and obviously with the cult, you know, that's because we're not only talking about, you know, the accuracy of the gun, but we're talking about the ease and its use. Because if you have a musket, I mean, loading that, reloading that thing, you know, that's just not, you can't just be some jackass that picks up a gun. Oh, okay, I'll do this. I mean, you, you have to, you know, you have to know how you're doing that. But with a cult, and when you're getting manufactured bullets, it's cheaper. And also, it's easier for multiple people to use. And I think that's really the big key. So the next big jump that we're going to see, Scott, I'm, I'm going to jump a little bit forward. There's some other advances in, in weapons technology. But to me, the next really, really big one happens during the Civil War. And that's the Gatling gun. Uh, the Gatling gun essentially was a a very early machine gun you know you would crank a uh, a crank and that would rotate the wheel and the gun would shoot and so for the first time ever um you were literally seeing people mowed down in their tracks and that was a big game changer you know people didn't couldn't wrap their mind around the fact of a this barrel just spewing bullets out of it and it completely changed the way that we looked at warfare and the way that war was fought. You know, you mentioned early formations where guys would just stand in and tight and march together. Well, now you can't do that anymore. With the Gatling gun, we'll take all of you out in one fell swoop if you want to stand that close together. So not only are we starting to see um, military technology really changing, but we're going to see military tactics start to change as this technology changes as well. Yeah, so looking at the timeline, just between, like, say, 1850 and 1870, a 20-year period, I mean, we have the first full-rim fire cartridge. It was invented in 1859. The Spencer repeating carbine uh, is patented. Uh, and then, you know, we obviously we have the Civil War, but, you, you know, breech-loaded guns are in common use. Uh, the Gatling gun is invented in the middle of the Civil War. And as I told, as I said in the beginning, it's amazing how these things seem to correspond with war. Uh, geez, it's almost like that's you know, planned. 
the center fire cartridge is introduced after the Civil War, 1869. Uh, we have the first cartridge revolver in 1871, and then the Winchester rifles, 1873. So we have that tight kind of 20, 25-year period where we have such a, a huge development. And really, if you look you know, between even just worldwide, Yes, we have the Spanish-American War at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, we have these little skirmishes, but we really don't have any major wars in between the American Civil War and World War I. And our timeline with PBS ends in the 20th, at the beginning of the 20th century. And as you, know, you well know, the amount of innovation that occurs just in a span of 50 years in between the end of the American Civil War and the beginning of World War One, it's just remarkable. I mean, we see the machine guns invented. Uh, we see the tanks invented. We see, you know, we, we're starting to see rudimentary chemical warfare. We have the U-boat. We have planes. So, you know, we're dropping bombs. We're, we're, we're doing, you know, all this kind of stuff. Where, uh, and it's funny, I, I don't know if you heard this, but uh, actually somebody, you know, as an aside, I was talking with the family over Easter that somebody has suggested that in order to stop school shootings, we had to put a tank in front of every school. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, that that's that sounds that sounds like it could just go horribly wrong, uh, but maybe that's just me. But yeah, and, and obviously the machine gun, in particular in World War One, that is just a huge game changer. Because there are actually more casualties in World War One for soldiers than in any other war that's been fought in human history, uh, and this is we're talking a four-year time period. I mean, the carnage that this thing causes. Uh, it's also the first time that we see uh, they they did they call it shell shock back then, but today we we know it as PTSD. And so that's the first time that we start to really see this uh, as a psychological phenomenon. And so there, it's just the way that war changed, and it's due to the technology, uh, all due to the technology. Yeah, especially, you know, you mentioned there was, I mean, there was quite a few conflicts in, in Europe in the late 1800s. You know, the eight, you had the Crimean War, you have the Franco-Prussian War, um, you have uh, the... Germany gets gets involved in a lot in uh, in some different op opposition movements. But you're right the war the technology changes the way war is fought. You know you have the trench warfare um, in the World War One time period in the early 1900s because of these Gatling guns, because of the machine guns, where you can't just stand out in the open or you will get mowed down. And so you start to see um, you know more spread out, more run for your life kind of military formations and you start to see really big big armies you know more drafts bringing in as many people as you can and that's when you really start to see just throwing bodies up throwing bodies at it throwing bodies at it and you start to see the difference in how men are trained where you've got the infantry versus you know some of the you know special scout teams or the the guys who can get into enemy trenches without being detected you start to see those differentiations in in the military a lot more uh besides just you know a, a cavalry versus an infantry no now we've got guys who have really specialized tasks to go in and take out certain militarized positions because that machine gun is going to take us down 
And so it's a big, big change in military strategy. And again, as that strategy changes, the guns change with it because you've got to get more mobile. So, you know, as we look for ways to clear a trench, here comes the Thompson submachine gun, a.k.a. the Tommy gun, a handheld machine gun that comes about in the 1930s that allows you to just spit bullets out as fast as humanly possible. No, it's not very accurate, but if you're shooting in close quarters, say a trench or as we get into America after World War I ends, someone in the mob who wants to take out a, a group of people quickly, the Tommy gun was a huge, huge invention. One of the things I invite people to do, particularly for our listeners that are based in Texas, um, take a trip to Fredericksburg. If you take a trip to Fredericksburg, you're going to see uh, that they have the Nibbets World War II Museum. And one of the things they have along with it is they have a live demonstration of the weapons that were used in World War II, including, uh, this is something they said, I have no way, no way to verify this, but they said they have the only working flamethrower from World War II. And when you think about, like, say, the flamethrower, the reasons why they use the flamethrower is chilling. Uh, because what was, or what was happening is, is that, you know, particularly when we were fighting Japan, uh, we started the whole island hopping um, strategy, and the Japanese they created murder holes, and so basically they had you know with a murder hole, what they had is they would be more or less underground, but they had just a little you know window that they could peer out, and they could put a gun barrel out and shoot people as coming by, and so it was really impossible to. Uh, to defeat them in that murder hole until they brought out the flamethrower. Because what the flamethrower does, and, and if you understand your science, you need oxygen in order for a flame you know, to, to do what it's going to do. And so if you shoot that flamethrower into that murder hole, it sucks all the oxygen out of the murder hole. And so our Japanese soldiers are literally asphyxiated. Uh, because they don't have any oxygen, because the flamethrower's taken that oxygen, so withdrawing all that. But what, but what they did at this demonstration is just the difference between the guns they had in for the Americans, 1941, and the guns they're using in 1945 is remarkable. We're talking about four years, folks. And the technology just gets so much better. And this is just, we're not even really even talking a machine gun. We're talking like the individual you know, rifle that you're giving to you know the average typical soldier, and just the technology increases how quickly it fires, how quickly can you reload it, how accurate is this thing, what's its range? I mean, we're talking, and they it'll, at the end of the demonstration they will have a fake battle where they're demonstrating like how this thing would work, and it's it's really you know it's quite chilling because you see people. Okay, this is not a snuff film, folks. They're they're not dead. But the, the actors pretend to be dead and just see, you know, all that, you know, transpires, you know, during those things. So if you live in Texas, if you're within driving distance of Fredericksburg, I definitely would invite y'all to go watch that because it's definitely an eye-opening experience. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, some of the, the, the Tommy gun. The other one that, that we see that is outlawed quickly is the Saturday Night Special. The Saturday Night Special is a very cheaply made handgun, you know, Probably in today's dollars, it would cost you 10 bucks. And this thing's like 
could come apart in your hand in one shot. I mean, it is so shoddily made. But the point is, is that they're so easy to come by. The only thing, what we're doing, the mob is using them to kill people because, you know, they could take them apart quickly, discard it quickly. And, you know, of course, we don't have ballistics or anything like that back then, you know, just like, you know, like the CSI folks now. So we're seeing even back in the 30s and 40s that we are starting to outlaw specific firearms that, you know, we are, we're regulating the right to bear arms, you know, as far back as that. Well, we'll, we'll get into the regulations next week. I don't want to talk too much about that because it will take us off on a whole nother rabbit hole. But, you know, you mentioned the, the, the 38 special, which is, I think it's about 20 years after the, the Thompson submachine gun comes out. Uh, and then the 38 special comes out. And here's where we're starting to get into a, a time period historically that I want to talk about with, with Harlan Carter. Because here's where the NRA is at a critical point, right? We're in the 60s. Harlan Carter has come in. He wants the NRA to, to really become a Second Amendment organization because as I, as I mentioned earlier the NRA is a is is a sporting organization they don't lobby they have done some light consulting previously uh and on the 34 gun control bill that outlawed the, the Thompson submachine gun and then the one in the 60s after a couple of assassinations of Kennedy of both Kennedys and Martin Luther King Jr um the NRA again sits in on the meetings but is not lobbying in any way whatsoever. Harlan Carter, who has a very long and disgusting history as the head of the United States Border Border Patrol, as the Border Patrol becomes militarized, comes into the NRA. Uh, He gets his own wing of lobbying in the NRA after making a lot of stink about being a Second Amendment rights organization. Then, in an attempt to oust Harlan Carter, they, they get rid of all his people. But what they didn't realize is that he had the ability to basically get enough votes to get himself installed as as the head of the organization. So in a, in a coup in 1977, Harlan Carter becomes the president of the NRA. And that's when the marketing of guns really, really changes. The, the NRA, again, was a place to get a, a, a very inexpensive rifle for hunting or sport shooting that was a former you know military rifle. It was a, a place for father and son shooting competitions. It was a sporting organization. And starting in 1977, that completely changes. And it is about gun rights. It's about arming the police to a level that our military is armed at and supporting them no matter what that they do. And it's about citizens having access to those same weapons. What people don't realize is when you arm the police, everyone says, well, you know, I don't want to live in a place where cops have more powerful weapons than I do. I need that gun too. So by all of this extra push to arm the police more, that allowed more people in America to be comfortable buying these weapons for their own home because the police have them. And I don't want to live in a state where the police could come and do whatever they want to me because I'm outgunned. So Harlan started shifting all of that in 1977 when he took over the NRA and, you know, and and change it into the organization it is now where sports shooting isn't a thing. That's not something that they care about. Anytime someone kills someone in the streets, that's when you see the NRA to back the person that pulled the trigger. They could care less about Olympic uh, target shooting when that's what it was started for. 
And if you look, there's a there's another shift that's been occurring at the same time, which is just you know echoes what you're saying. In that, um, and this is something you know, Janet, who we had on last week, she is you know mentioned many many times because uh, uh, her father, so my father-in-law, is you know a gun owner. Uh, he target shoots. Uh, is one competitions, but this, the thing is, what the NRA used to do is the NRA used to provide training. Hey, you want to you want to own a gun? You want because you know back in the good old days when we used to actually require people to have a license if you own a gun. But you know, he she tell she's told stories many many times about how he taught her growing up about what you're supposed to do with a firearm. He would never open carry. I mean, he, uh, that's stupid. I've never actually seen any of his guns because he has them locked away. The NRA used to provide for that. The NRA used to do that. It used to sit there and say, hey, you want to have a gun? Hey, come on, get trained. We'll train you at gun safety. We're not, they're not doing that anymore. We're, we're not training people in gun safety. We're, we're going to let you open carry. We're going to let you, you know, constitutional carry, whatever even that, you know, really means. And so that's, you know, the sinister thing is not only is he mass, you know, mass marketing guns and really doing this on the behalf of the gun manufacturer, but we're doing this while removing any semblance of training or safety that the NRA used to do and the NRA used to be uh, in favor of. Because if you go and if you right now today, if you were to pull the rank and file NRA members, a majority of them would be in favor of background checks. A majority of them would be in favor of, you know, licensing and all these things. But this is something that NRA management has kind of separated away from its rank and file members is what, is what we're seeing today. Yeah, they certainly are in bed with, with gun manufacturers at this point, and they are they're the lobbying wing for the gun manufacturers, which is interesting because the gun manufacturers after 2004 had no need to worry anymore because George Bush made them um, unable to be held liable for any of the things that their guns did. And so it's interesting that they need the NRA at this level. Uh, a couple more advances, you know, in the history and the history of guns. You look at um, when Obama was elected, there's a very large spike in gun ownership in the United States, mostly to the fake stoked fear that they were going to take your guns. And so that again, did a large spike in gun purchases. And then again, here at the start of COVID, um, when people were being forced with lockdowns, they thought they were going to be forced inoculations, forced lockdowns, all that stuff. Again, conspiracy theorists run wild and lo and behold, gun sales go crazy. So I I think one of the things we've seen in the trends of gun ownership and the the trends of gun technology is There's got to be someone that you're scared of when you want to sell guns, okay, and and anything really after the 1830s. And then you want technology advances, you got to go to war. (laughs) So it seems war advances technology, and the boogeyman at home is your marketing device. Um, That's kind of going to take us to the end of of where we're at with the technology of guns, I think, Scott, because next week um, we'll kind of get into – some of the history of the regulations, because I think we can take it all the way back to Rome. Uh, when you can look at, you know, in certain Roman cities, you couldn't even carry your sword. 
And so um, there's a long history of, of weapons control in the world and in the United States. And it'll be a fun, interesting topic for next week. But uh, I think that kind of brings us to our, our favorite segment of the week this week, uh, unless you got something else that you want to add in there. Yeah, uh, just to, to tease off the, uh, the fact is because we, we've watched the rhetoric, how it marches in line with the technology. Jimmy Carter was going to take your guns. Bill Clinton was going to take your guns. And as you mentioned, Barack Obama was going to take your guns. And then, of course, now Joe Biden's going to take your guns. And so we're seeing, again, is this rooted in any kind of reality? No. It's rooted in fear. It's rooted in emotion. And that's where you know the, the gun lobby, the uh, gun activists, have taken everything, is that you know we're going to make you afraid. So what are we going to make you afraid of? Well, could be this group of people coming into the country. Could be this group of people who you think are going to you know invade your neighborhood. Uh, but in this case, it's we're going to make you afraid of a politician. That politician is going to come take your guns when none of them have done it. And so it's just it's it's funny that we keep going back to that well, and that there's never any proof that you know they're anywhere close to doing anything. Like All right, Scott. Well, then that's going to bring us to that time. Our our very, very favorite segment of the show. And it's going to be the scumbag of the week. Um, on a week just so full of choices, so rife with opportunity. Two people have separated themselves and have stood above all the other scumbags that are out there. Scott, who are you nominating this week? Um, this was a close one. I did have a dishonorable mention that I was going to bring up, you know, but uh, after giving it much reflection, my scumbag is Travis Tritt. Who is Travis Tritt, you may ask? Well, if you are a Gen Zer, you probably don't know who Travis Tritt is because he is a country western singer. He has five number one hits because I, I looked this up. His last number one hit came in the year 2000. So we are somebody that, you know, really hasn't done much. Now, he, why is he the scumbag of the week? Well, he used to be a huge uh, backer of Anheuser-Busch. Had Anheuser-Busch stuff all over his, you know, his, his travel when he was going on tour. Well, he announced on Twitter that he was removing them from, you know, from his bus. There was going to be no mention of Anheuser-Busch anywhere because they have gone woke. Uh, with their rainbow can, uh, I don't know. I mean, have you seen any rainbow cans? I, I certainly haven't in the in, in the stores. But you know, what do I know? Now, what's funny is, is he said that I'm not afraid to say this, but some of my other colleagues, they're not going to tell you that they're doing the same thing because they are afraid they're going to be canceled. And it's like, okay, jackass, what do you suppose you're doing? Whenever you are saying, I don't have them uh, anywhere on my van or my, or my buses because they're too low. Could it be that you're trying to cancel Anheuser-Busch? And I, I had this guy, and I made a post on Facebook. I do this about once or twice a year where I post something on politics on the public wall. And so I had a guy I graduated with who says, well, no, really, that's a boycott. It's like, okay. What do you what are you trying to do with a boycott? 
you're either A, you're trying to get Anheuser-Busch to change its policy, or B, if you're, they've done something truly awful, you're trying to get the other companies to look at and say, geez, look what happened to Anheuser-Busch. I don't want to do that and get that kind of a backlash, so we're not going to do woke either. But what they've shown over time is that woke, uh, unless they say woke policies or woke marketing or you know, whatever you want to say, most of these companies are actually seeing an increase of profits when they do this. And so, you know, Travis Tritt, you know, him of, you know, 23 years ago had a number one hit. Uh, and, and you see pictures of him. It's hilarious. He wears makeup. He wears, you know, these clothes, which, you know, I'm sorry, kind of make him look a little bit effeminate. And so it's like, wait, who are you again? And why should I care whether or not you drink Budweiser? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come right out. I'll, I'll say it. I don't drink Budweiser. I don't keep drink cores. I don't drink beer very often. I'm a diabetic. I can't sit there and drink a six-pack of beer and, and, and do well. So if I have a beer, like I'll have one beer a night. And if I have a beer, I want it to be a good beer. I don't want it to be beer-flavored water. And so, you know, I don't buy Budweiser or Coors, whether they're woke or not. And I honestly don't care if you do or not. I'm not going to get mad at you if you like Budweiser. Life is just way too short for that. But Travis Tritt, for wanting to cancel Budweiser and then turning around saying, oh, they're going to try and cancel me, you get to be my scumbag for the week. I unfortunately had the... It's not a pleasure because it wasn't pleasurable, but I got to hear Travis Tritt live about a year and a half ago, and he was awful. Absolutely awful. I went to see uh, Brooks and Dunn, and Travis Tritt was opening. And he, you know, the, the place was fairly full, and then he starts to espouse MAGA bullshit off the stage, and slowly but surely, the entire crowd walked away. And then what, you know, now it's Garth. I mean, it's Brooks and Dunn's time. Boom. People are running back to their seats because everyone's like, now's a good time to go to the bathroom. I'll go get it. Travis Tritt sucks. When you are, have been in the game, as long as he's been in the game and you're still going around opening for people, you're, even if, even if you wanted to cancel Budweiser, you can't, you're not a big enough name. You're a loser. You're a loser. Who had like one good hit in 1990 something. And, you never grew up, and I mean, he's a MAGA loser, and he's a scumbag for sure. All right, Scott. Mine this week is, it's not complicated because he's just a scumbag every day, but he's a scumbag specifically right now for some stuff that's going on. So Clarence Thomas is one of just the worst human beings in America at this point. Um, just... In general, terrible judge, terrible guy, terrible representation to youth of what you can be as an adult. Clarence Thomas was brought on to the Supreme Court in 1991. Clarence Thomas didn't ask his first question as a Supreme Court justice until 2016. For those of you at home, that's 25 years. He sat silently on the bench and did jack crap. He was put on the bench to replace one of the most liberal Supreme Court justices to ever live in Thurgood Marshall. 
but because George W. Bush was a racist and a piece of crap, I'm sorry, H.W. Bush was a racist and a piece of crap, he goes, I'll replace one black guy with another. We're good. What are people going to be upset about? Well, there's plenty to be upset about with Clarence Thomas. We had a whole, whole debacle when it came time to, to get him sworn in. He is a guy who loves to talk about porn with women in the office. He likes to whip it out to show it people. He's a bad guy. But now we find out he's a guy who's close family friends with someone who collects Nazi paraphernalia. It turns out that Clarence Thomas has been taking vacations with the GOP mega donor Harlan Crow for more than two decades. And on top of it, Clarence Thomas has never, ever um, admitted to any of this. He didn't ever disclose it at any of his financial disclosures because he was told relationships with close friends don't need to be disclosed. So he takes lavish vacations, which he doesn't pay for. He's spending time in resorts, flying on private jets, living the high life. All of this being paid for by a guy who has two Hitler paintings, a signed copy of Mein Kempf, as well as assorted Nazi uh, memorabilia. On top of a bust of Stalin, a bust of Mao, a bust of any famous totalitarian dictator you can think of, this guy's a fan. And our Supreme Court Justice, whose wife, Ginny Thomas, helped plan January 6th, takes vacations with this guy and doesn't feel like he ever needs to let anybody know. And to make it worse, Scott, have you the, the way the media, the right-wing media, is responding to this, saying that this guy's just a collector, using it to remind himself that capitalism wins out, get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here with that. The right wing of the Republican Party are fascists. They are Nazis. And these guys have always looked up to them. Hitler based a lot of what he did to the Jewish people in Germany on how Americans treated black people. The Nuremberg Code was based on the Jim Crow laws. America and Nazis have had a link the entire time. There were... Plenty of pro-Nazi people in America until the start of World War II. So to sit here and to act like this guy is not a literal Nazi and to act like he doesn't influence your decisions as a Supreme Court justice in any way whatsoever, pardon my language, it's bullshit. And he's a scumbag this week more than he is any other week. Uh, So here's my favorite part of this whole thing. But, you know, as an aside... You know, I've thought about maybe buying a Confederate flag just, you know, just as a reminder of, you know, what the South did, you know, to, to slaves. You, know, you buying that argument? Uh, no, I'm not either. But my favorite part. So you mentioned 1991. He is on the court. By my math, that's 32 years. When asked about how long he had been a friend, he said, oh, about 25 years. So that means that. He had been on the court for seven years before this guy wants to become his friend. So why does this guy want to become his friend? Gee, I wonder. But yeah, that's a good call. I was going to add one bonus guy. I I sent you um, a link to this today. And and we've mentioned this guy before, Jason Whitlock. 
Um, I, I, I have a video, and, and, and I, unfortunately, you know, videos don't do well in a radio medium, but we have a, an old teacher who has confiscated a phone from a stu- an African-American student, and the African-American student calls him the N-word and says, give me back my phone, doesn't give it back. He sucker punches the guy in the face. And here's what Jason Whitlock has to say. This is sickening, fatherless culture. We're suffering generational curses for abandoning the family structure God prescribed. This is sick. So here's my question for Jason Whitlock. Do you know this kid? Do you know whether he has a father or not? Or are you just kind of leaning into African-American stereotypes because you're African-American, you can do that sort of thing? So, you know, which one of those is it? You know this kid or you're just guessing? And that's the thing that I I hate when people like to do this kind of stuff. And that's why, you know, Clarence Thomas has always bothered me. It's why Candace Owen bothers me. It's why Jason Whitlock bothers me. Because Jason Whitlock, he was a sports reporter. He still does some sports, but he seems not to spr- anymore. Unfortunately, he he's to turned spring- into a yeah. He he's a right wing shithead now. Yeah, he sprinkles in you know way too much politics, even when he's you know talk about sports. Like he'll sit there. He's made some you know drastic you know derogatory comments. Um, Dave Chappelle. He always said like, oh yeah, he know he lives in a MAGA neighborhood. It's like, do you know this really? Or are you just being an asshole guessing just because you want to throw him under the bus for doing exactly what you're doing, which is selling out your own people, you know, it, it probably stuff that you really don't believe, but you know, here comes the bag man to give you a sack of money for, you know, forwarding the right wings, you know, propaganda for, you know, for the only place that, you know, that could do it from the voice of an African-American. So what is he going to say? Is he, not, is he going to say that there's a civic racism? Hell no, he's not going to say that. What he's going to say that is because, you know, dads are leaving their families and that's, you know, have single kids. And that's why all this crap has happened. Now, I can tell you, I, I've worked in schools. Uh, I've never been hit by a student, but I have had students, you know, treat me disrespectfully. Some of them had fathers, some of them did. Some of them were white, some of them were Hispanic, some of them were black. It's come in all shapes and sizes. And so whether or not somebody is a uh, parent, you know, a product of a single parent that, you know, has little to do with, you know, what we're actually seeing. But, you know, you go on, Jason Whitlock, you know, you, you get your 30 pieces of silver. All righty. Now there's some uh, people who put stupid stuff out on Twitter that I think I'd like to recognize. First and foremost, Ben Shapiro. Noted dumbass and right wing shill made a you know he likes the video medium Scott so to quote from one of his videos talking about Harlan Crow's Hitler artifacts and dictator statues I mean that seems like a reason you might want to own this stuff is to remember the things that you hate again we talked about it in our scumbag of the week but again you don't you don't buy stuff that you hate that's that's the the most asinine thing. I can imagine, and, and and Ben Shapiro again, right wing shill, dumbass, awful human being who doesn't understand life at all. Also Jewish and supporting a Nazi, crazy. Tweet number two. This one actually came from someone's Facebook. It says in bold guns, we defend our president 
with guns. We defend our congressmen with guns. We defend our governors with guns. We defend our celebrities with guns. We defend our sporting events with guns. We defend our jewelry stores with guns. We defend our banks with guns. We defend our office buildings with guns. We defend our factories with guns. We defend our courts with guns. We defend our children with a sign that reads, this is a gun-free zone, and then call someone with a gun if there's an emergency. It's just so asinine and black and white to just literally be like, someone has a gun there, so we defend it with guns. Let's not let's not forget there's like six agencies that defend the president with like all sorts of gathering of information and intel and clearing areas out and make sure it's safe to be there. Nope, it's a guy with a gun making sure that our president's safe. That's all it takes. One guy, one gun, you're safe. It's 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 asinine. Well, to jump in here, yeah, and, and this is perfect. So the Secret Service are the ones who are next to the president. Can I just la-di-da walk into Washington, D.C. and say, I want to be in the Secret Service, and they're going to hire me like that? No. What are they going to do? They're going to do a background check on me. They're going to make sure, hey, is this a guy that we actually want defending the president of the United States? They're going to look at it, you know, my psychological history, my criminal history. Gee, there's a thought. But here's here's one of my favorite. Jump in here. Colin Rudd. Uh, I don't even know who this guy is, but he has a blue check mark, so I guess he must be important in, uh, in Elon Musk's world. Justin, Louisville mass shooter identified as Connor Sturgeon, who identified as a he-him. I've said it once. I'll say it again. It's not the guns. It's the pronoun extremists. So here we go. Guns didn't kill those people in the bank. Pronouns did. Just, you know, sit and think about that one for a while. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more next week, too, as we as we talk about, you know, the culture around gun reform and the whataboutism and the guns don't kill people, people kill people. All the things that people use as excuses uh, to not actually do anything to, to make the situation better. Well, next week's going to be a really interesting talk, Scott. It's going to be... It's going to be frustrating. Um, it, it's going to be a tough one to, to work our way through because we're going to have to talk about all these mass shootings and all the lack of change that's happened. It's, 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 it's the opposite of this gun technology conversation we just had where you know every time a war happens, technology changes and guns gets better. Well, every time a mass shooting happens, Republicans dig in, play some random video of the one time a good guy with a gun stops somebody and make us feel like we're all in danger if we give up our guns and it's every single time and nothing ever changes and so it's going to be a it's going to be a really uh, emotionally charged episode next week to work our way through some of the the history of, of gun control and, and really the lack thereof here in america yeah uh definitely we want to keep that sucker teed up for next week because i think you know next week's episode you definitely want to tune in. Uh, for those who listened this uh, this morning or this evening or whenever you're enjoying this podcast, thank you for, for becoming a part of the Snapbook family. Uh, where can they find you, Tim, on the uh, different sites? Yeah, I'm always at Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter if you want to reach out there. Uh, be sure to like and follow our Facebook page, The Snaphook. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so that way you don't have to worry about going to find it every week. It'll just magically show up in that podcast app every Wednesday and Thursday morning. 
Uh, you can find me at Esparzilla on the Twitter machine. I also write uh, for the uh, Texans fan site, Battle Red Blog. Uh, you can catch me there. And, you know, I, I write under a pseudonym on Juanita Jean's uh, Beauty Salon. So lots of different places, but uh, just like Tim said, please, you know, don't be a stranger. Come on, give us some comments. You know, give us some, you know, we like the five-star ratings as well. Uh, but, you know, if you have something that you want to say or, or a guest that you want us to look at or an issue, you know, please let us know. You know, we love to interact with uh, however many fans that we have accumulated to this point. Well, that's going to do it for us here this episode. Again, we'll be back next week um, with part two of our conversation on guns. We'll be talking the history of gun control. And don't forget, tomorrow, Thursday, uh, we'll be talking sports. We've got a great Masters to talk about. Um, the Rocket season's wrapping up. And just when you think the Astros have turned a corner, they find a way to kick you in the balls again. So that'll be a fun conversation coming up on Thursday this week. But we appreciate everyone who joined us. And again, as Scott said, we appreciate people who are becoming a part of the Snap Hook family. That's all that we have for you here today. We will see you next time on the Snap Hook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Hook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Hook.